Hello, Nancy Durrett. What an absolute pleasure to be chatting with you today. And we're here to talk about your fantastic book, Data Story. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's jump straight in. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what would you describe really makes kind of the perfect ingredients to the Data Story cocktail? Cocktail. A cocktail sounds great right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the big thing in, uh, that's inherent in all my work is empathy. So I think when we're digging in data, it uses a part of our brain that's very analytical and very factual. And uh, it's just, a, it's, it's a different way of working. So once you go into the data and you've found a problem or an opportunity, because that's why we use data, suddenly when you emerge with the problem or opportunity that the data is pointing to, then you have a communication problem. And because we work so deeply in the data, we forget to pause and say, uh-oh, now I'm communicating data and I need to have empathy and use story so that I can solve the problem or exploit the opportunity. And that was an interesting concept that really jumped out as well. You talked about really understanding who you're communicating to and really getting inside their, their, their frame of mind when you're communicating to make sure that your message resonates. Can you talk us through that in more detail? Yeah, I think a lot of times data, you know, when you're using it for something, you're, you're creating a recommendation from the data. And most of those recommendations have to go up the food chain. So a, a chunk of the book is about communicating up. What does an executive care about? How do you present the data to them so a decision can be made quickly? Because the last thing you'd want to do is slow, use data to slow down your decision-making process. I've seen it kind of in my own organization. We'll have a great conversation. We'll all agree to what needs to be done. And then next thing we know, someone will say, do we have data to support this? You know. So there's, I figured, that there's three things every executive is measured on. And of those three things, uh, you're pushing some of the factors up and you're trying to push some of the factors down. So executives are measured by money. They're driving up revenue and up profit and they're driving down costs. They're also um, measured by market, how um, you're trying to increase the size of your market and you're trying to decrease your time to market. And then the third thing is exposure. You're trying to drive up retention, client retention, customer retention, partner retention, and employee retention, and you're trying to drive down risk. So that's exposure. So if you have a recommendation from data that doesn't appeal to one of those three categories, it probably doesn't belong on the executive's desk. If you know it needs to go on the executive's desk, you need to make sure you have an appeal in there to one of those three areas that they're trying to drive up or trying to drive down. And then one other key point you mentioned around that, which I found fascinating, is um, really getting inside the, the job that somebody has and the time they have available and kind of, I suppose, the, the balance between I've got so much to say and I'm the type of person perhaps that communicates with hundreds of slides, but actually the reality is I really need to cut this story down. Yeah, and to make it really, really tight and skimmable. Now, a lot of work goes into, especially if someone's a consultant or works for a consultancy or, uh, or it's a really big initiative, you have to query a lot of data. And so because those, the insights from all that data uh, took you a lot of time to find, uh, you get attached to it. You get really attached to it. And then you're like, but I want them to see how smart I am. I want them to see how vast my research was, you know. I'm definitely so guilty of this myself, I've got to say. Is the, <laughs> I'll keep putting those slides in because so much work was done. So much work is in there. And so that's why in the book, I give people permission, make the narrative really tight and the data story really clear, but 
put a big old gargantuan appendix in there. If you want to show off all that went into it, call it an appendix and put it in the appendix. That way, if your readership is interested in knowing what went into your insights or they're like, I don't believe it. I got to see the data that supports that, you know, then they can jump to that section, but you, you don't have to put all those charts in the actual bit that you're really wanting everyone to comprehend and understand because it just muddies and makes murky exactly what the action is people are supposed to take from the data. Yeah. And that was one of the things that was lovely as well, just how practical the book was. So, so the recommendation tree you proposed where you can literally structure it in that way as such that you really can. I described it. I was chatting to one of my colleagues and I was like, this is great for me. I have so many ideas, so many thoughts in my head and trying to frame them and organize them in a systematic way. So your message doesn't get lost. I really love that recommendation tree in there. Oh, I'm so happy. You're the first person that I've done a podcast with that even used the words recommendation tree. So I appreciate that. Literally, honestly, I did a program, um, a learning program a few weeks ago and I had to present and I was ordinarily, I went to do my, my ordinary process. and I was like, no, this is fantastic. The first opportunity I've got to apply that. And it was so helpful. It really, really was. It's really great. Oh, that means, that means a lot to me. That's very cool. And then talk us through... If you're working in a large organization and you need to kind of bridge together how you tell the story and let's say broadly speaking it's it tends to be the sort of creative types and you've then got the data and science types they're not quite polar opposites but it's fair to say they often think operate slightly differently how do you help bridge that gap and bring them together I think that uh, what I tried to do in the book is make it accessible to the creative types that need to be more data centric and the data centric types that need to be more creative. I mean, if you talked to my creative director is amazing. She runs the whole creative team and she's getting in, getting promoted and she spends a lot of time in data and never would have known that her job would require this much access and ability to swizzle data. But the same is true for the data people. They need to pause and realize that they need to embrace also the creative the creative side of their brains and i think um for me one of the kind of a tip if that's kind of what you're looking for is um i have a certain place i process my data and then i go to a whole new environment when i need to be creative so i try to break up the spaces because i think our brains go into our modality they're like oh i'm in my analytical world i'm going to analyze so if you have a place where you can create a creative place or a creative world for yourself then maybe move into this other place if you're analytical and, and back up and start to think empathetically and creatively about who you're speaking to and how they tick and what they need from you to get them unstuck. It's a different mindset. I like that. I like that thinking in terms of breaking up into sections. And um, when it comes to delivering the message, one other fantastic recommendation, the, the thing about the book for me was it was just so practical. Um, there's so much that you can read and literally put into place directly and and some of it is like, of course, that makes so much sense. And it, it plays back in your head and you, you think back to somebody that's presented exceptionally well and you realize there's fantastic extracts from this that clearly they've applied. One that really jumped out was the ability to make the story you're telling relatable. Could you give us some examples perhaps where you've worked with clients and you've pulled out kind of really relatable stories that have taken what is a, a chart or a data point and brought it really to life that somebody can, that really resonates yeah, so one of the ways to make data relatable is to use, um, connect it to something that's very familiar and relatable to your audience. Like 
we, we, it's kind of interesting because we look through our own eyes all the time. So the size of my hand and the distance of my hand from my face is a relatable distance. A step is a relatable distance. Commuting at 55 miles an hour is a relatable distance. You can use those kinds of sense of scale, sense of distance, sense of time. I roughly know when it's been a minute or an hour. And so you can use those kinds of metrics that are familiar and relatable and connect it to data in some way because the scale of the data that we're using today is huge. So that might be something like um, a trillion, if you, a trillion dollars would be the same as, you know, laying a hair end to end for the thickness of a hair end to end and it would go from one side of the United States to the other. Like, that's a lot of hair, you know, because you know the size of it. You know the size of the hair, or that would be, so many people will say, that's like going to the moon and back eight times. I've not been to the moon. I have never been to the moon. But it, but you could say, if you drove your car six, 55 miles an hour to the moon and back, you would have been driving for blah amount of days, right? And you can understand, oh, that's driving for seven days, but I don't know how long it is to the moon and back, 239,000 miles. I've never driven 230,000 miles, 239,000 miles. So, so you connect it to something that's very familiar and relatable, and then people can get the size of it. Like one of the examples in the book was the example of how when Apple removed their packaging, when they reduced it, the car, when they reduced the size of their packaging, instead of saying, oh, our packaging is smaller, they said now, instead of it taking four cargo planes to ship it, it's going to only take two car cargo uh, planes to ship the same amount. Well, cargo plane, we roughly know the size of it. And then and then they could tie it to carbon reduction emissions, right? By saying, yeah. so instead of just being like, hey, the packaging's really cool, you know, they equated it to saving uh, carbon, which was clever, right? And so th that's ways to take a piece of data and uh, make it relatable. Really helpful. And if we imagine you've understood a lot of the concepts here, you've done your preparation, you've got your presentation, lovely, organized, ready to go. A lot of people still suffer from stage fright when it comes to them presenting. What would you recommend in terms of the right approaches to really making sure people can deliver their message as it's intended? That's interesting. Um, we're seeing early information actually about uh, virtual presenting versus in-person presenting. And they say the introverts, the ones with stage fright, are getting higher scores in the virtual presenting kind of That's really interesting, setup. yeah. Yeah, and then the ones that are natural extroverts and can just walk on a stage and be comfortable, their scores are lowering in virtual presenting, which is interesting. That's fascinating. I know. So I, I, it is a fight or flight instinct. So the amygdala part of our brain starts to fire because we feel like when we walk on a stage, we're entering into a threatening environment, right? Whether it's judgment or someone's going to hate me or I'm not going to perform well. Like it, it, it is a, it is an instinctual thing and everyone deals with those instincts differently. So I did a survey of all the top speakers in the country, like 30 of them replied and I asked them what their pre-talk ritual was so that they wouldn't be scared. And three quarters of them had a, three quarters of them, mostly the males had a, um, they would like bang their head to heavy metal music they would amp themselves up. They would run around the block a couple times before they spoke. Like they did these kind of like, like, I don't know, like just like, I'm going to go attack this beast. And then other people, which is more what I do, I, I have to kind of calm myself down. I'm already always amped up 
anyway, <laughs> bless my heart. Um, so I, I have to calm myself down. So I breathe deeply. I do yoga breaths. I, I inhale real slow. And then I, I, when they say, oh, go to the green room and relax. If there's people in there chatting, I can't chat. I can't be social. I have to go, I have to go calm. And so what was interesting is I thought, oh my gosh, I feel left out. All these other people are listening to heavy metal music and banging their head around. And so this one talk I did, I thought, okay, I'm going to do power poses. I'm going to not be calm behind stage. I'm going to like stretch and have, you know, try, tried to jump. I jumped up and down and pumped my fists a bit. I walked, I got through the talk and, and, and did fine. But the people who hired me, they were like, are, are, are you sick? Are you not okay? Because you never caught your breath and you seemed like you were racing and you seemed like you were kind of in a panic. And so, so I did, it didn't work for me. But it just depends on physiologically what your body's doing. I also, there's a few times I've been nervous. I don't naturally get nervous, but I've had some really, really high stakes people in some audiences. And so um, the other thing I'll try to do is if someone sends me something and says, this is really funny, I save them. And right before I walk on stage, I try to find something that makes me laugh because that's also a chemical reaction. So fear is a chemical reaction and laughter or hope or joy, those also create a chemical reaction. So I try to physiologically change my, my chemistry before I walk on stage. And I think um, there's, there's plenty there. And I think, um, I suppose this environment right now, it, it lends itself for an opportunity, right? So for those people that want to speak more and perhaps are not quite ready or want to sort of ease into it, then the opportunity to, to present online is a nice way in. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. It's camera work, right? When, when, you're, when you're in a live audience, it's eye contact. It's making the audience feel they can connect to you. But, but remote is all eye contact, looking at a little tiny piece of technology, which geeks are pretty comfortable doing, right? They just got to look at the little camera right on the um, a display, and they'll do great. And um, in this environment, obviously, it's a bit... It, things have changed quite a bit. Um, at the same time, I think there's quite a few organizations that have been working remote for some time. But for, for anybody who's less familiar with kind of remote working and sort of working from home has, has proved slightly more challenging, what would you kind of recommend in terms of for people to encourage better working behaviors and team efficiency? Yeah, I think I've, I've, there's things we've done in this particular situation. Like there's people who will have children crawling over them while we're in meetings. And we, if anything, the admiration at our team for the working parents is just through the roof right now. Like we just, I've been on a couple calls where I watched my employees stay under such grace, under pressure. I was just, I was blown away. Like a couple times I had to hang up and be like, that was powerful. I watched them be patient with their, it was just so powerful. Um, so it's different, right? Right now is a different working condition, but. We've had 50% um, of our workforce working remote for a couple of years. Um, it's just expensive to live and work in California. So a lot of them just bounced out wanting to work wherever they, wherever they are. And we're not, we're not um, big brother. We don't monitor what they're doing. We are a billable culture. So as long as they're getting their work done, um, they get to kind of do, um, do it however they feel um, is the best way to do it. There hasn't been much of a, a beat skipped, except my whole New York team had to scatter, right? And they were used to being in the city. And 
everyone, it took some adapting, but everyone got to a place where they completely uh, got what was going on, got their head around the work. And we've done really neat things because one of our one of our values is to belong. That's a core value. And so to have everyone scatter and be remote made us worry about if people would feel disconnected. So we've done things like a virtually social hour. We have, um, we've done an award ceremony and where everyone gathers, we have cocktails together. Um, we have clubs at our shop. We have like the beer club, the wine club, the book club, like that kind of, and so those clubs continued virtual, just stuff like that. Um, and that's been really good. And I think uh, if people don't feel like they belong to the company that they work for while they're using their technology, I think it'll, create a chasm in their productivity and um, in them just wanting to get out of their pajamas <laughs> and get, get their job done. So I've gained weight. That's the other thing I wasn't expecting. So I think you just sit longer. It's, and it's impossible not to in this environment, right? And you don't even get a break to go to the bathroom. Like I, you know, so it's just like, it's just so different. And um, we, we created a honeydew list. So anyone who had time, because obviously there's less work in, so anyone who had time, they could sign up to either lead or be part of a honeydew list. So that kept everyone feeling like they weren't just burning through the company money on salary. So we had these lower priority projects that needed to get done, but nobody ever had time. And so we put different people in charge and people are packing away at that, and just tightening everything up so that when we do rebuild, we've got a really great foundation. And in more ordinary times, if we can remember that, what do you do to kind of stay on top. So clearly you must have an unbelievably hectic schedule ordinarily. And on top of that, you've written some exceptional books. You must travel a lot to, to present. What's kind of, I suppose, some of your sort of efficiency tips and tricks that somebody might be able to sort of take on themselves? I have a, um, I have to create a cadence. I have a rhythm. So I'm in a season of writing and then a season of rest. But my season of rest looks a lot like marketing the book, jumping in back as CEO, right? And so when I'm, when I'm writing a book, I pretty much work from 5 a.m. to about 11.30 every day and every weekend. So Data Story took three years, almost 16 hours a day. Well, it so looks beautiful. Have, I mean, you can tell the, well, the care and thinking has gone into it. Yeah, and I think, I think the reason I do that, I don't know if it's because I'm female and, and female business writers tend to not have as much credibility or if it's just that I just want to make sure it's right. Last thing I want to do is have someone attack me and say it's not credible. And, you know, you just don't have the energy for that kind of stuff. So it's about 16-hour days. Like I was thinking wow. about, wow, what was I doing this time last year? Because when the, when the government is telling you you can't leave your house, you feel like, oh, my God, all you want to do is leave, right? You want to be able to go out and do what you want. So I was like, well, what was I doing this time last year? No, I was 16 hours a day on my butt writing a book trapped in my house. I never left my house. So I was like, oh, that's right. I can do this because I do it all the time. And then from 11 until the end of the day and sometimes into the evening, I do my book, my calls, my meetings and all that stuff. But the big trick to it all is my, how I work with my assistant. So my assistant doesn't, isn't charged with packing my day as tight as they can be. She's charged with protecting my day as much as she can. So when I'm in book writing mode, like, I mean, you have to be a pretty powerful person to get on my calendar before 11 a.m. when I'm writing a book. But we also have a way that we use signatures. And, and if I, based on my salutation at the end of my email, she knows, get them on my calendar as soon as possible, get them on my calendar in the next two months or 
make some great excuse for why they cannot make it on my calendar at all, you know, um, because I just can't. It's just too much inbound, you know, interest to, to do that. So I, it, it's pretty disciplined. And so when I have, when my kids or other people don't, aren't calendar based, it's, it's harder, right? Because I'll be like, hey, hey, is there a slot between this time and this time that might work for you? And I can give a two-day slot to someone and they just don't get back, don't get back, don't get back. So I leave most of my weekends open because my kids are not calendar-based. So I'll just make sure whatever I'm doing that weekend, it's pretty flexible so that if my, one of my kids happens to be like, hey, you want to go to lunch? I could be like, sure, even though I'm calendar-driven and we don't ever open one. Um, so it, it does, the rigidity does create, you know, um, I have to leave time open for spontaneity, which sounds probably bizarre to a lot of people. But It's an impressive level of discipline, it really is. I, I actually like it. Like, my assistant tells me what is the most important thing to me do. It's just weird. It, there's some rest for me in that. Weird. And then just touching back on the book so anybody that hasn't read it who hasn't read it who has read it and just goes you know what i really want to take this further i really want to understand the framework and really apply it can you you've got a workshop right yeah we have a workshop and it's so cool because it it was the real all of our workshops are real hands-on and you get you get a case so you're given a a case of a, a cacao a cocoa producer not not a confectioner sugar maker candy maker but someone who actually makes and uses cocoa beans and you break this whole case apart and make a recommendation. So you're learning through a case and then you go from the case and you do it for yourself. So the cool thing is, is because of COVID, the team turned this course into a virtual one and it is spectacular. I'm so proud of them. It took a lot of work, but they made it as amazing in a virtual situation as it was as it was in person. And so it's filling up, which is fantastic. So it's, it's a great, it is. I'm sorry. It's so weird to hear you talk about your own work like that. It was hard work and, and the team you know, flipped it into a different course and it was really beautiful to see. Yeah, that's fantastic. Especially the, the level of agility in this environment, right? To be able to do that is really, really great. So um, thank you so much for your time today, Nancy. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Um, we're going to be giving away a few copies of your book this week for our listeners and also we'll be including some links to Nancy's site also where you can check out her workshop. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it though. It's been an absolute pleasure and what a brilliant, fantastic book. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.